Story 8 of Elsie and the Child, A Tale of Riceyman's Steps, and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 8. Outside and Inside. 1. The events recounted in the following recital had two sides, the outside and the inside, which must be displayed separately. The outside was seen by Mr. Telfer. Mr. Telfer had nothing whatever to do with the affair, save as a spectator of the outside of it. Many other persons, like Mr. Telfer, saw the outside without seeing the least bit of the inside, and from among them I have chosen Mr. Telfer by sheer chance. Mr. Telfer was a quiet, simple, regular man, and a great authority on the times and the speeds of the trains to Surbiton which trains to and fro he would catch daily with practice skill by thirty seconds or so since he lived at surbiton he seldom went to the theatre in london because he did not care for being up late of a night nightly he played patience occasionally cheating himself and drank two whiskies and sodas during the exciting progress of the game but one day a friend of his in the city an official of a trust company whose tentacles wound themselves about nearly everything in london said to him at lunch look here telfer my lad it's the first night of twelfth night at the eden theatre to-night i've got a stall and now i can't use it do you care to go mr telfer cared he took an unusual train to surbiton dressed etc glanced at his shakespeare and came back to town for the performance he had frequently read in the descriptive press gorgeous accounts of the social and artistic glories of theatrical first nights but he had never attended a first night seldom indeed had he ever sat in the stalls when he went the pace he treated himself and a companion to the dress circle and no more hence he was excited and very pleasurably filled with fine anticipations as his taxi drove up to the portals of the eden he was doing the thing in style as his ticket had cost him naught he saw the facade of the theatre inflamed with the following electrical sign aida jenkinson in twelfth night he had never heard of aida jenkinson till that day with others of the mighty and the exalted he passed between two rows of gapers into the theatre and he saw everywhere in the entrance hall boards inscribed thus mr osprey chown large presents miss aida jenkinson enormous in twelfth night moderate by william shakespeare very small together with the portrait of a rather handsome and dashing dame elsewhere it was announced that aida jenkinson would sustain the role of viola the innocent girl who for adventure's sake disguised herself as a young man the auditorium was soon full everybody in the stalls seemed to know everybody in the stalls except mr telfer who was left lonely and so had opportunity to wonder at large who was who the band played the lights went down and the curtain went up on the magnificence of orsino's palace and after a short scene a cloth descended to represent the sea-coast and three sailors and viola herself entered to a terrific roar of welcome from enthusiasts in the gallery mr telfer could not understand how they recognized miss jenkinson so quickly for to his eyes she bore scarcely any resemblance to her portraits in the foyer 
Miss Jenkinson stepped right out of her part and effulgently acknowledged the roar. At this stage she was still dressed as a woman in an enveloping cloak and a hood over her head. Perhaps the cloak gave a false amplitude to her figure, but the cloak could not account for Viola's crimson cheeks and rich rubious lips, so odd in a young woman who had just escaped from a shipwreck. "'What country, friends, is this?' she began in a powerful contralto voice, the voice of a mature experience accustomed to command. Ill-mannered individuals in the stalls smiled at one another. She announced imperatively to the sailors that she would be a man and serve Duke Orsino, and that the sailors must help her, and the sailors agreed quickly, without argument, and she made her exit, and the cloth rose on Olivia's house, wherein ageless characters, Sir Toby Belch, Andrew Aguchek, and Maria indulged in dazzling farce to shouts of applauding laughter. The next scene was Orsino's palace once more. It was empty. It remained empty. Murmurs began in the stalls, in all parts of the theatre. They increased to a hum of conversation. Hours seemed to pass, but probably not more than a minute passed. Then a hidden voice said, Lower, lower, and the curtains fell, and a gentleman, beautifully clad in evening dress, stepped in front of it and said, Kind friends, I deeply regret to inform you that Miss Aida Jenkinson has had a sudden indisposition and cannot possibly act tonight. She begs me to express to you her profound sorrow, together with her apologies. All monies paid for seats will be returned at the box office. The speaker bowed and vanished. The band played God Save the King. An absolutely unique sensation in London theatrical life. The audience could not believe its eyes and ears. Mr. Telfer, among others, was disappointed, and yet at the same time he was pleased and made proud by the thought that he had assisted at this absolutely unique sensation. He was sorry that, as his stall had been complimentary, he could not demand twelve shillings for it at the box office. The electrical sign was still brightly blazing on the façade when Mr. Telfer, with the rest of the amazed, staggered, and chattering audience, got into the street. It was barely half-past eight. The automobiles had been dismissed till eleven o'clock, and there were no taxis except such as came up with late arrivals. The mighty and the exalted had to get home as best they could. The next morning Mr. Telfer examined his newspaper with extraordinary interest, expecting to see columns about the Eden Theatre matter but he found only a miserable two inches saying baldly that miss aida jenkinson had suffered a serious indisposition at a critical moment and that it was understood that the show would be postponed the show however was not postponed it was totally suppressed mr telfer had a very agreeable day at the office he was of course the only man in the office who had witnessed the absolutely unique sensation such was the outside of the event. 2. Now for the inside. Mr. Asprey Chown, justly reputed to be the greatest showman in England, had his ups and downs, his years when he bought precious stones, of which he was a collector, for choice, and his years when he sold them from necessity, 
and he had been rather glad of the opportunity to present aida jenkinson as viola in shakespeare's twelfth night not that he in fact did present her she very much presented herself he had experienced two devastating failures at the eden theatre and he could put his hand on no spectacle to follow them with a prospect of success moreover the eden was eating its head off more than forty horses in forty stables mr asprey chowne was paying three hundred and fifty pounds a week rent for the eden on a longish lease and its market value for short tenancies was anything between four hundred pounds and four hundred and fifty pounds a week aida jenkinson contracted to pay him four hundred and seventy five pounds a week for three months certain at the same time leaving him nominally at the head of the establishment further she accepted the whole of the financial risks of the enterprise and she gave him ample security for her prospective liabilities she had the reputation of being close-fisted but in the transaction with the imperial asprey chown she certainly showed no sign of this quality true the unique chown had qualms about the effect of the affair on his artistic prestige but being a very clever and ingenious person he adopted the wise course of treating it to his acquaintances and business connections as something in the nature of a great and original lark as something which nobody but he would ever have dreamt of doing and after all aida jenkinson was no ordinary woman and assuredly no ordinary actress when some varieties of actress get into the newspapers apropos of activities other than their professional activities it generally appears that they are the offspring of tobacconists aida however was the daughter of a strictly christian master chimney-sweep in poplar from the first there could have been no misapprehensions as to her vocation she was very obviously born for the stage at sixteen already fully developed she topped an amateur dramatic society in shoreditch some people were misguided enough to jeer at her they even attended performances of the society for the sole purpose of laughing but at eighteen she had squeezed herself into a touring company devoted to a full-throated melodrama at nineteen she was playing leads in such pieces as the wronged wife human hearts the long lane what men pay for and the lone girl her salary rose and rose she saved she made an unhappy marriage lost both her husband and her money and saved again loan she passed a year in america at twenty-three she had her own company to which she paid almost nothing a week and an extraordinary company it was aida did not demand talent nor youth nor beauty she was ready to supply unaided all the talent all the youth all the beauty what she wanted and demanded was the spotlight and the centre of the stage there were still misguided people who laughed at her who asserted that she was dreadful to the point of side-splittingness and who regarded her posters in which innocence was always depicted in situations of extreme danger or dazzling triumph as the final word in chromographic vulgarity but in the first place aida never noticed or heard of these people and in the second place even if she had learnt of their existence she would not have cared aida might be just what you pleased but she delighted the public 
Managers of provincial theatres worshipped her as an idol. When she got to stage doors an hour before the performance, she always saw cues of the public waiting patiently but ardently for the privilege of paying money to see her. In auditoriums, she seldom saw an empty seat. She never came onto the stage and never went off it without exciting her audience to roars of applause. Of course, her audiences did not consist exclusively of university professors and leaders of society. Her audiences might be fairly described as popular. But they had the three greatest qualities that an audience can have. They paid, they applauded deafeningly, they came again. Aida's share of the week's takings in number one towns frequently amounted to a thousand pounds, and since her company and her entire expenses cost her far, far less than four hundred pounds a week, it will be seen that she contrived to live and keep her head above water. Thus she went round and round the country, year in, year out, growing richer and richer, eternally gorged but never sated, with adulation and success, and more and more deeply convinced of the unquestionable truth that there was only one Aida Jenkinson. But we are rarely what we ought to be. Aida ought to have been content, and she was not. A worm had insinuated itself into the rose of her happiness and was gnawing at its heart. The worm was not the desire for love. No, she had had one love affair and wanted no more. And the worm was not another phrase for the finger of time. For Aida, Aida was changeless. Nobody ever happened to mention to her that twenty years are twenty years, and as for twenty-five years, being twenty-five years, well, I should hope not. On the contrary, all her employees, all those with whom she did business, conspired to prove to her that twenty-five years were less than one day in their sight. In other words, that she was not a day older, not a day less slim, not a day more mature than in Victoria's reign. She believed the tale, and so mighty is the power of autosuggestion, supported by heterosuggestion, that it conquered even her mirror. The worm, indeed, was not a worm in the rose of her happiness. Better to say that it was an adder which she nourished in her rich bosom the adder of ambition, the ambition to play and to triumph in the West End of London. She had never played in London. Somehow she had boggled at London. She had announced that she despised London. The statement was inexact. She felt night and day that her life could not be complete without London. Once in America, where she courageously took what she could get, she had played Maria in Twelfth Night in a one-night stand legitimate troupe, and thenceforward she had longed to play Viola. Henceforward she had seen herself as Viola, and now she had the wondrous intoxicating notion of playing Viola in London. She met Mr. Asprey Chown in a hotel in Birmingham. Mr. Osprey Chown, to her as to all successful ladies, was very gallant, as they pronounce it in the Midlands and the North. The contract for a season at the Eden Theatre ensued. And Mr. Osprey Chown very soon began to regret the contract. That is to say, he did not regret the financial side of it, but he regretted the other side, the other side which would affect, perhaps disastrously, 
his prestige with the west enders who think that they know what is what and who is who mr astbury chowne's own rather artistic show was quickly dying in the last performances in the evenings and in the daytime aida was rehearsing the jenkinsonian version of twelfth night mr astbury chowne having had tidings of the nature of the rehearsals remained inside the manager's room which he had specially accepted from the tendency to aida the invisible man had a series of shocks in the first place there was the cast there was for example the part of olivia youthful lovely and ardent princess the second most important female role in the play the enchanting girl who had inspired duke orsino with a passion that amounted to madness aida gave the part to emily fantour emily was indeed a shakespearean actress her name was known to experienced playgoers and had been printed on many bills but she was also a grandmother mr asprey chowne remembered her from his boyhood and it might be said of her prime that there were giantesses in her day aida offered her eight pounds a week and she eagerly closed the ladies of olivia's court all had similar physical qualities they dwarfed aida which in itself was a feat they rendered aida by comparison girlish another feat the men whom aida selected were younger and slimmer save sebastian viola's twin brother who might well have been the monument on which patience sat the next shock was aida's choice of a producer mr cyril blenkhorn an honourable name in the annals of the shakespearean stage had played with barry sullivan osmond Tyr, and henry irving aida seemed to have raised him from the dead and he was a funnier caricature of a tragedian than any character of a tragedian that phil may ever drew the third shock was the way in which aida treated shakespeare and her producer aida was a businesswoman who knew exactly what she wanted she wanted everything she wanted the centre of the stage and the front of the stage and she wanted them all the time she wanted the audience to see aida's face and to see the face of nobody else she wanted to get all the tears and all the laughs she wanted all the effective lines she cut all the other parts with mighty shears in the duel scene with toby belch and his fellow clowns she reduced the clowns to naught and with difficulty prevented herself from killing andrew aguacheek dead at the first thrust instead of being page to the duke orsino she put on an air signifying that the duke was page to her it was all very wonderful blenkthorne even came along one day with a cutting from an old criticism by the great victorian dramatic critic clement scott which said that twelfth night ought to be drenched and drowned in viola aida gave blackhorn a dinner for that discovery and subsequently quoted it at every turn not that she needed any moral aid she had learnt ruthlessness at rehearsals in america and besides had a natural instinct to be tyrannic she was capable of saying anything and saying it continuously the company obtained new aspects of the glorious resources of the english language also the company soon perceived the value of silence acquiescence and submission the next shock was the manner in which aida delivered shakespeare's verse and in which blenkhorn caused the other players to deliver it 
as it issued from aida's rubious lips no one could imagine for a moment that it was blank she gave it forth like thunder like lightning like shells from a twelve-inch gun like thick clouds of vapor like midnight motor-buses thundering through deserted thoroughfares curiously she never addressed any of it to the other characters in the play it was all directed straight into the auditorium where the packed audiences were to be she did not make vicarious love to olivia she made it to the audiences she did not swear allegiance to the duke she swore it to the audience but she did quarrel with antonio and did not quarrel with the audience every syllable was heard every consonant every vowel it was all more than wonderful why don't you come down to one of my rehearsals asprey dear she asked mr chown she called everybody by his or her christian name i should love to answered mr chown but i'm so devilishly busy i will when i've time i'm dying to see your methods the next and possibly the master's shock occurred when the rehearsals having advanced somewhat aida ever work womanlike appeared one morning in a costume which gave her freedom for action as the duke's page the assistant stage manager went up to mr asprey chown's room she's in knickers mr asprey chown stole across into the flies and surreptitiously gazed down my god he murmured under his breath my god and aida went on absorbed in her splendid part absorbed in the fulfilment of her ambition dreaming of grand triumphs convinced that for her time did not exist and now and then secretly reproaching herself for having chosen two mature players as a foil when really there had been no need to do so one day her beautiful dreams were ever so slightly disturbed by a trifling incident she was making love on behalf of the duke to the grandmotherly olivia in her rapt ecstatic audible manner and saying what she would do if she herself the page were in love with olivia build me a willow cabin at your gate she crooned lost in shakespearean emotion some cabin came a low voice from the wings or seemed to come for surely it could not have been a real voice surely it was a delusion of aida's fancy she walked majestically to the side and two members of the company simultaneously choked aida saw no one but mr clevey the chief electrician kneeling engaged in some job of rewiring he hummed quietly to himself aida hesitated please don't hum she said with majesty mr clevey a stoutish middle-aged man in creased clothes turned as if startled and gazed at her blandly right you are miss he replied three the dress rehearsal arrived mr cyril blankthorne with flowing white hair and a scarf in the barry sullivan manner thrown picturesquely over one shoulder sat solitary in the stalls twenty or thirty people paragraph writers a critic or so photographers friends of the players were scattered in the dress circle and they were joined from time to time by such of the players as were temporarily not occupied on the stage mr asprey chown had expressed his deep regret to miss aida jenkinson that he could not be present nevertheless he was secretly present 
hidden neatly behind a curtain in an upper box he was drawn to the dress rehearsal by a terrible and a sinister fascination he felt that he must know the worst he soon knew it aida strutting in stockings and gaiters and knee-breeches as a page specifically described by shakespeare as something older than a boy and younger than a man made an unprecedented a unique spectacle which was rendered worse by her tremendous and impassioned earnestness the great scene between the fading provincial star as a youth and the grandmotherly emily fantour as a tender and young princess became pathetic farcical tragic at any rate aida dominated the stage and she dominated it in the full glare of attendant beams of light which left nothing of her features or her form to mr chowne's imagination her powerful voice threw out the lines like a string of sausages from a sausage machine and clearly she was very content with herself clearly she foresaw triumph the worst was so much worse than anything previously conceived by mr chowne that he honestly wished he had never seen a theatre in his life indeed he had a passing fancy for the grave beneath the sod what irked him to the point of exasperation was those four words on the bills mr asprey chowne presents they frightened him more even than aida's immense coloured posters in the style of cinema publicity and he was helpless he could not erase the words for aida under the contract had full control of all advertising aida made her entrances and her exits and not a sound was heard from the darkness of the auditorium but after the first clowning scene during which aida was off came a little timid applause such as is not unknown at dress rehearsals at the end of the act mr chowne decided to depart lest some calamity might happen to him and on its way down he met sebastian viola's double and told him that his green coat was too full and ought to be taken in and while passing the prompter's corner he heard aida indicating extensive cuts in the clowning scene don't you hear me stupid cut all that i tell you and get hold of the parts and put the cuts in before anyone leaves tonight let them rehearse it to-morrow morning mr chowne stepped on tiptoe dolorously into the street he could stand no more he knew nothing of the photograph call after the rehearsal and was not aware that the photographers were commanded to portray aida alone in eleven poses and the whole company with aida most prominently in the midst in only one pose he was not aware that finally aida said to mr cleeby cleeby we're going to have another lighting rehearsal now and that she kept the entire staff up till five o'clock the next morning nor was he aware that throughout the night mr cleeby one of the greatest exemplars of self-control in the history of the british stage addressed no remark to aida beyond yes miss no miss it's your stage miss it's all one to me miss i'm here to do as i'm told miss nor was he aware that at the close of the proceedings mr cleeby went to a public-house off fleet street specially licensed to keep open for the entertainment of newspaper hands and informed the bar that aida was a rare fine bit of stuff though long in the tooth 
and that she could what he called act but that if she tried to come it over him one single inch the next night he would positively do her in let her be as athletical and as tyrannical as she might four hours after this solemn announcement of mr cleby's intention mr asprey chowne with a bursting heart fled to paris he was not aware either that heaven was watching over him and that he himself had quite unintentionally set in motion the strange sequence of tiny events which heaven would use for his salvation on the night in her first scene in which she appeared as the girl viola miss jenkinson was received with shouting applause chiefly from the gallery but extending also somewhat through the circles down to the stalls her exit from that scene however was accompanied by silence in the auditorium beneath her large loose cloak she wore all her male attire except the tight-fitting green coat there was ample time to throw off the cloak and don the coat before the beginning of her next scene and she filled most of the interval by a number of sternly whispered commands and recommendations to various individuals in the complicated human machine by which a play gets itself presented she had never done giving orders her dresser waited in the wings with the coat aida flung away the cloak and offered her tremendous shoulders for the coat which the dresser put on aida pulled it together at the front and failed to make the sides meet the intermediate scene was ending she could not understand what had happened to the coat or in the alternative what had happened to herself in her impatience she simply forced the garment with one tug to meet in front a horrid tearing sound was heard she had ripped the back seam nearly from top to bottom the garment now met in front but not behind the situation was appalling as much in itself as in the mighty speechless fury of the star everybody in her vicinity seemed to be spellbound with fear mesmerized petrified seconds were hours then it was that mr telfer had seen the curtain descend with the thick curtain between herself and the audience aida found her tongue she raged up and down amid the riven fragments of her ambition to entrance the west end as viola she knew that she could not start again the next night or the next week and that the coat could not possibly be repaired for any continuation of the performance the same night indeed she tore the coat to pieces in the presence of her trembling company and staff she had worked in vain she had bullied in vain she had studied in vain in these moments she really was a mere girl in her broken and volcanic heart mrs pumper the wardrobe mistress approached her though aida had not sent for her mrs pumper was fascinated by horror into attendance at her own execution at the sight of her aida ceased to rage and said with fearful contralto calm that coat fitted like a glove last night she waited mrs pumper gazed affrightened at the impressive figure in tight blue knee breeches frilled white shirt and an auburn wig mrs pumper spoke in spite of herself i must have taken your coat instead of sebastian's miss i was told to take it in an inch and i must have fastened that tab as you asked me on to his coat instead of on to yours 
that's what it is they're exactly alike and i got em mixed up i'm very sorry but there's no seeing anything up in my room both lamps give out and i asked mr cleavy to see to it and he didn't and i've had to buy candles with my own money to get anything done at all you asked cleavy yes miss i did and more than once too where's cleavy i'm here miss said cleavy appearing from somewhere aida loomed over the stocky soiled creased bearded figure cleavy maintained all his tranquillity nobody moved why didn't you see to the lights in mrs pumper's room because you gave me no chance to miss you kept me a wanderin around here till five o'clock this mornin and i want some sleep same as other people i ain't a mechanical toy as you wind up aida's volcano erupted suddenly in smoke and flame and covered the stage with a sizzling lava of figurative metaphorical and symbolical language most of it was aimed at mr cleavy but the entire population of the stage had shares of it the company and the staff had thought that they knew the full range of aida's self-expression but now they admitted themselves to be mistaken the rich picturesque terrible ebullience continued from the splendid mouth which a few moments earlier had been sweet violas at length it ceased aida took breath for a further display listen here miss said mr cleavy if you say one word more one word i'll wring your fat neck for you several people laughed but aida jenkinson was appalled more completely than anybody else had been appalled at mr asprick Jown's theatre that night it was a knockout blow she shrieked sank down in a heap and sobbed mr cleavy lit his pipe the heap was a forlorn old woman surreptitious telephones were soon at work other theatres had the news newspaper offices had the news but they stuck following the great british tradition of propriety to the theory of an illness dramatic critics went to bed early rejoicing in half a night off aida married mr cleavy the only man who had ever stood up to her she retired from the stage somewhat poorer in money but with a master mr cleavy also retired from the stage in order to devote all his time to the management of his wife's possessions she may have had regrets but generally speaking she was happy enough mr cleavy being a male of the class and with the social code and manners of her father her brothers and her first husband End of story eight.